Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Tuesday, the 25th of August. Welcome to the New Statesman's World Review. Thank you for joining us. Emily, let's jump straight in, and I'd love to hear you tell me something about the life enhancing experience that has been watching the first day of the Republican National Convention. Yeah, life enhancing is not (laughs) the way that I would have described it. Last week, I said that I thought that they would use this to double down and really speak to Trump's base. I did not have the capacity of imagination to foresee exactly what that would look like. But it, it was that, you know, you had Donald Trump Jr. talking about how Donald Trump promises every American the perfect family and the perfect home and radical left democratic socialists threatened to take that away. There were a lot of specifically black politicians speaking, or at least a few, speaking about how Trump was not racist and et cetera, et cetera. But also this convention that was clearly meant to speak to a, a white voting base that wants to keep America segregated. You know, and I I would also just say that there's been some conversation in the States about how, oh, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, so the former UN ambassador and a current senator from South Carolina, how they're potential candidates now for 2024 and 2028, and they offer an alternative to Trump Jr. And it's like, they're also speaking for Donald Trump at a convention with a party that has no platform, save for Trump's second term agenda. So leaving aside that we have no idea what politics will look like in 2024 or 2028, I just think the reality is that this is Trump's Republican Party now. And that was very much on display last night. There doesn't seem to have been much of an effort to expand the tent. Certainly watching from afar, you get the sense that part of the role of a convention is to offer a few different flavors of a certain candidate or a certain platform. So, you know, you may respond particularly well to a certain speaker that pitches the candidate in a certain way. Whereas this kind of relentless Trump, 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 to me, wouldn't seem like a very good way to kind of reach out to voters who might be wavering one way or the other. I guess you could say that you had Nikki Haley and Tim Scott as kind of a more establishment mm. alternative, but it's but it's of the same message, right? So for example, in the DNC, you had Bernie Sanders, but you also had Tim W. from Texas, who's a former right. Republican who's voting for Trump. You did not have that last night. I mean, they had like one Democrat who was voting for 
for Trump, but who was still speaking the same the same message. But it's there was a lot of talk last time about how he was going to pivot once he won the primary. And then, well, once he became president, then he would pivot. He's not going to pivot. The message, as Trump is the candidate, the message will only be Trump's message, right? They kind of can't go beyond that. Anyway, what was your moment of the week, unless it was also the RNC? As thrilling as the RNC has been so far, my moment of the week, or the moment that I think is historically most significant, if not exactly any more encouraging than the news out of the RNC, is the story from Hong Kong yesterday, as we record, so Monday, that there has been the first confirmed instance of someone being reinfected with coronavirus. Uh, This was a a youngish man, I think 33, uh, who returned from a trip to Spain via the United Kingdom to Hong Kong. He'd had coronavirus, I believe about four months ago, got over it, and then seems to have picked it up again. And that's very worrying, particularly as there's a lot of focus now on getting a, a treatment or a vaccine the coronavirus. You know, Russia has unveiled a possibly somewhat dubious vaccine. Trump, to come back to the RNC, has been talking about buying up a a fast-track vaccine from the Oxford University research and pushing it through the US population very fast. And yet, the whole basis on which we are vesting this hope in a vaccine falls apart if you if it turns out to be the case that many people could end up being reinfected having once been immune so a concerning story it seems to be a one-off case which is i suppose the positive it might just be that this occurs in a small number of, of cases but certainly one to watch as the world looks ahead to a way out of the the current crisis and with that i will invite you to introduce our guest Yes, we are so excited because our guest this week is Sarah Chase. She is the author of On Corruption in America, What is at Stake? That's the US title. The UK title is Everybody Knows Corruption in America. Sarah, thank you so much for for being with us today. What an honor. Before we get to the uh, discussion on your fascinating book, I wanted to ask for your thoughts, if, if you have any that you're willing to share on the beginning of the Republican National Convention. You know, I'd like to pick up on something you were saying, Emily, which is actually both of you were saying the focus on boy not expanding beyond the base. I think it's something really important to register. This fundamentally is a minority agenda. And in fact, it's a minority agenda that fundamentally benefits a tiny, tightly interwoven coterie of super rich people who become and stay super rich, frankly, by bending a lot of the rules. And yet, in the person of Trump, that coterie has managed to come to power. Basically, he was a huge opportunity for them. Because of the combination of their, I want to say, sophisticated use of the instruments of power, and of influence, and his appeal on a sort of cultural level, they've been able to put together a very, I want to say, ardent minority support base. They don't have any plans or need to expand beyond that base. Sarah, can I just ask, do you feel that the the economic elites whose interests Trump has furthered, do you see them as being actively in cahoots with him and his political project? Or do you think that it's more of a sort of happy alignment of agendas? Take a look at Stephen Mnuchin. I mean, he's a great example. Stephen Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, 
you know, founded his private equity firm side by side with George Soros, who's like, you know, the international representative of liberalism. Steven Mnuchin is actively and energetically advancing the Trump agenda or or advancing his own agenda under the Trump banner, if you will. That's what I think is going on. I don't think Trump really has an ideology. I think he's a very rich guy who is fraudulently rich. I mean, has achieved his riches through bending and breaking the rules and lying repeatedly, right? That's his business model. And that's a time-worn business model for the super rich. Other than that, I'm not sure he has a gigantic plan, but there are networks of super rich who do have a plan. And so I think it's not just happy to go along, to get along, but it is a very active instrumentalization by perhaps a more strategic coalition of the benefits of a Trump presidency. The individuals who are wound into this sub-network, I I mean, I I myself, having launched work on this book with the hypothesis that this is what I would find, even I was sort of agape at what I did find. Right. I I do want to talk about the book specifically because you've reported on corruption all around the world. So maybe you could speak a bit for our listeners about how you decided to write this book and also how corruption... You know, I I remember speaking to somebody in Central Eastern Europe and they said to me, well, here we have media oligarchs, but you guys just call them billionaires. So I I think that there's still even now this resistance to think of America as a place that could have corruption. So if you could speak a bit not only about how you decided to write the book, but also how corruption in America looks different or doesn't from corruption elsewhere. So on where this book came from, let me take you back just a little bit further after 9-11, I went to Afghanistan basically to do reconstruction. I very quickly discovered that corruption was central to everything that was going on. And as I lived there for a decade, and, and so I watched the Taliban return to a place which had been so overjoyed to see the back of them. And what I discovered to my surprise was that it was corruption driving people back into the arms of the Taliban rather than, you know, some deeply felt religious feeling or cultural rejection of the West. That I didn't experience at all. So that sent me down the road of this career. I discovered that there were patterns and practices that were common to systemically corrupt countries around the world, regardless of topography, geology, you know, history or governance system. I already thought, was thinking, uh uh-oh, I think we're on this continuum. When I wrote my last book, which talks more internationally, which is called Thieves of State, what I discovered was that systemic corruption against which there was no, you know, recourse drove people to extremes. And, And already back in 2015, I was starting to see the signs of that here, although I hadn't really looked at the United States, I had lived overseas most of my life. And so I was worried that we were going to get an extreme reaction to corruption here at home. Frankly, I really think that's what the 2016 election was. It wasn't violent extremism, but it sure was electoral extremism. Two maverick candidates 
who made corruption central to their campaigns, and I don't compare the two, but it's Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump, did ridiculously well. Nobody expected either of them to do as well as they did. And so that, for me, was the beginning of an extreme reaction. But even before the election, what really blew me away, and it's the prologue to this book, was a Supreme Court decision that overturned the corruption conviction of a former governor of the state of Virginia. What shocked me was not so much that his conviction was overturned. Um, It was a straight up bribery case. We don't need to go into the details. What shocked me was that the unanimous verdict of a jury, unanimous confirmation by a court of appeals was unanimously overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that brings me to your second question, Emily, Mm -hmm. which is that I actually think regular Americans are perfectly happy, and that's what I've found in researching on corruption in America, are perfectly ready and happy to say this country is corrupt. The people who aren't comfortable with that are the elites. Mm -hmm. So what I saw in that Supreme Court decision was a sharp divergence and a dangerous one between how the 99% of ordinary citizens understand the word corruption, if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, and an increasingly narrow and technical definition of corruption that, number one, makes it an absolutely unprosecutable crime, and number two, aims at making it just not very important. You know, it downgrades its importance, whereas I have seen it at the root of every single massive crisis the world is currently confronting. I have one other sort of follow-up here, which is I was watching a documentary about Frank Sinatra, of all people, on Netflix the other day. And there's this part in it where the Kennedy family goes to Sinatra and says, can you get the mafia to help us win West Virginia and Illinois? And he, according to this documentary, does and then wins the White House. And then RFK has JFK distance himself from Sinatra and mob ties, et cetera. And I was thinking about this going through your writing because you identify the Kennedy family as one era of American corruption. Obviously, there's also the Gilded Age. There's various points. But how is this different from the eras of really obvious corruption that we've seen before? So let me take your question backwards. It's a complex question. The Kennedy family is in my book for a slightly more specific reason than that. It is highly likely that John F. Kennedy did accept the assistance of the mob in getting elected. However, what's really critical in the story is that it was not John who sought out that that assistance. It was his father, Joe. And so why Joe Kennedy is in there is because it's a litmus. That family is a litmus about a kind of turning of epoch as far as corruption is concerned in the United States. So what I would say in, in answer to the So the real part of your question is that the Gilded Age was, which I date broadly from approximately 1870 until the late 1930s, was a period in which the political and economic system was sewn up by kleptocratic elites almost identically to the way they are today. 
it's an unbelievably and frighteningly similar situation with the same results. In the Gilded Age, you had the Panic of 1873, and then you had the Panic of 1882, and then you had the Panic of 1896, and then 1907 and 1920. You know, I mean, this was driving the economic system to disaster repeatedly just like we've had the savings and loan crisis and then the dot-com crisis and then the, you know, 2008. I mean, and there are a couple others in there. And in both cases, it's transnational. It's not just the United States. And it's happening around the world, regardless of political, not only party, but system. It's a kind of epoch thing. Now, my point about the Kennedys is it shows that there, that epoch came to an end because Joe Kennedy was a perfect Gilded Age character. Precisely in that, he was weaving across the sectors between business and criminality, right? And he was bending the rules in all the ways that the Gilded Age people did in order to maximize their wealth. What's fascinating is Joe Kennedy did not get rewarded for it. Joe Kennedy was, is not remembered as a Mellon or a Carnegie or a Rockefeller. He never made it to that stratosphere. And my, my hypothesis is that he was born too late. He was born 20 years too late as coming into maturity as the ethos was shifting. Fundamentally, John and Bobby are of a different generation, and they genuinely did put public service at the forefront of their endeavor as human beings, maybe not because they were better human beings, but because that's what their society demanded. That's what it was rewarding during that brief 40 years after World War II. The next question is, well, what got us out of it in the Gilded Age? What can we learn? And unfortunately, the answer I come to is, well, it took two world wars, it only took two world wars, a pandemic that dwarfs this one, the atomic bomb and, a, and an economic meltdown that devastated the entire world. So the urgency of this book is, boy, we're on the same path as the Gilded Age. Can we? pull ourselves back from it. On that point, Sarah, I mean, the comparisons with with the Gilded Age is relevant also in that it was an age that produced a wave of populism or populist-style politics in various parts of the the rich world. You know, you had William Jennings Bryan in the United States. You then had Teddy Roosevelt. You had in in the United Kingdom, there was a a backlash against the extremes of inequality over the, the previous decades with the foundation of the first elements of the British welfare state under David Lloyd George. You could talk about the creation of the Bismarckian welfare state in Germany, you know, those were reactions against, yes, obviously corruption is part of it, but the whole architecture of extreme inequalities of wealth and power. And I mean, we are seeing a, a populist backlash and a backlash that takes various forms. I mean, you talk about the parallels and non-parallels between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, but one of the ways in which one can draw a parallel is that they are both they are both voices for people's anger at a system that they feel is stacked against them. I mean, do you, looking at the current sort of state of the West, say in those expressions of anger and revolt uh, you know we've we've come through another summer of protest about various things but including them uh, corruption and inequality do you see in those the seeds of a turn of, of of a move to something better or are you just 
fundamentally pessimistic about about the picture. It would certainly be easy to be pessimistic. You know, you look at the way, for example, yet again, we're asking the question, can dodgy money from Russia or wherever help skew this American election? Will the European Union ever really properly get its act together and deal with money laundering loopholes in its own system or act as one in talking up, talking up against corruption elsewhere in the world? Will corruption ever be vanquished in places where Places, for example, like South Africa, where people are taking to the streets to protest it. I mean, looking at that picture very much at a global level, would you say you do see seeds of hope or is it just just gloom all around? So I'd like to go back to the word populism and just be a little bit careful because back, and in fact, William Jennings Bryan wasn't even really a populist. The populist party was an incredibly sophisticated rural movement of not just protest, angry protest, but very carefully thought out, repeatedly experimented with reforms, many of which were adopted in the United States, as some of the European examples that you gave also were. This was populism as a positive, frankly. It worked very hard, eventually unsuccessfully, but worked very hard to be multiracial and inclusive, if you will. The sophisticated solutions it came up with included direct election of senators and a flexible currency system, which is now everybody's standard, just about, and various other reforms that at the time did not get enacted. But when you talk about, you know, quote unquote, welfare state, I mean, those are also, I want to say, social solidarity that cemented the sort of post-World War II, what we now look back at, as a relatively politics and economy that were much more equitable than today. So today, the word populist gets slapped on a Trump or an Orban or something like that. And I think we need to be very careful to distinguish among 19th century populism. And frankly, the way that word has been turned into an insult to suggest that it's just a bunch of angry people screaming and yelling. And so my first answer would be go populism. We need populism of the real form. Yeah of the real original form. But just that, that on, on specifically that point, I mean, particularly hearing you talk about the genuine merits of populism in its original form. I mean, it seems to me that we're at a bit of a chicken and egg situation where you need a society with the institutions that mitigate differences of power in order to tackle corruption. And yet, arguably, corruption, I mean, obviously, others, you know, we can look back at these other examples from history where people have got out of this loop. But it is also possible to say, or easy to see how a corrupt society is one where it's harder to make those reforms, to build those institutions and to to sustain those institutions. I mean, what do those past examples tell us about getting out of that, that loop? So that's what's so interesting. The downer is that I found that 70 years of unbelievably persistent creative, imaginative, sometimes raucous, sometimes occasionally violent, but extremely determined and multifaceted protest in its own time produced almost nothing, produced some better reforms during the progressive, you know, better laws during the progressive era in the er very early 20th century, 
But most of those laws went unenforced. What it took, and that's to repeat what I said before, was four or five mighty cataclysms of a level that we can't even imagine in this day and age. So what I'm saying today is, number one, I don't believe in hope. (laughs) You know, I believe in determination. And so I see positive signs in the fact that the population is done with this. What worries me is how skillfully members of these interwoven corrupt networks are capturing the disgruntlement of populations and bending it to their purposes. I'm not seeing very effective or sophisticated reformers who are able to capture the public imagination, frankly, the way the Orbans and the Trumps do. And that concerns me. I don't want to sound like Cassandra here, but I I can't read my findings any other way. Yeah. Well, there is another sort of message in your book that I wanted to ask you about is one final question. There's this passage where you're speaking with somebody about the Nigerian god of wealth, Olokun, and the person says, when the god of wealth really hates you, when he really hates you, he gives you money. Can you unpack the paradox there a bit? Bless you, Emily, for asking that question, because that's one of the remarkable features, or I want to say unusual features of this book, is I weave a lot of mythology into my current affairs, because I think that we have turned our backs on sacred stories at our peril. And what the Olokon story tells you, who is the god of wealth, also the god of the sea, because wealth came to West Africa in general, wealth came from the sea quite often. What's terrifying about that is also the conquest of West Africa came via the sea, and West Africans were turned into wealth. Oil is Nigeria's wealth. It comes from the sea. It's kind of terrifying to think about that, how much destruction has been wrought by the single-minded pursuit of wealth. And that gets us, or money, I want to say, that gets us to another myth that I, that I work with, which is the myth of Midas, which we all know, like he asked the God, can I have the, you know, the God says you can have a, any, any single gift you want. And above any other gift, this guy wants, wants gold, right? Turns out Midas existed and was king where and when, more or less, money was first invented. Money is a very specific way of storing and transferring wealth. And what it does is engage the people who fall prey to the Midas disease, that is, the desire to just keep on accumulating money. It engages them in a race with no finish line. And what happens in Midas, which is sort of the same as Olocon, is Whatever Midas touches turns to money, but its intrinsic and irreplaceable value is destroyed. And that's what the people today, today's Midases or the people that Olocon has touched with wealth, that's what they're doing to our planet, to our living conditions, to our um, creativity, to our labor. They're converting it all into not even gold anymore but zeros in bank accounts. What I'm trying to say with this book is if we let them go on unchecked, if we let often our identity divides blind us 
to the fact that these are the people we really need to be focused on curbing, we are headed for disaster. On that bone chilling note. (laughs) Yeah. That actually brings us very neatly to a section that we like to call. You ask us. Having nailed the delivery of that, you ask us. Our question this week comes from John, and it is, quote, Hi, there is a strong body of opinion on Twitter. Sorry, no problem, John. That Navalny and referring to Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, and Pussy Riot, the punk rock band, are a Putin-sanctioned fake oppo. The argument seems to go, Navalny argued for abstention from voting when it was useful to Putin, and if Putin wants you dead, you're dead, not imprisoned, then released or poisoned, but recover. What's your opinion, and what's the strength of evidence either way? Thanks, John. I would just note, so Navalny recently was poisoned and is now in Germany trying to get medical treatment. Navalny himself has addressed this question and basically said, they didn't deal with me when I was too little to be dealt with. Then I got too big. And when they decide that I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but when they decide that I'm really too big, then they then they will deal with me. I think there's so much in Russia about like what's real and what's fake and who like there's the expression, who is your roof, which means if you're allowed to act with some independence, there's somebody in the Kremlin who's protecting you for their own political reasons. And that when they tire of that, you'll be done. The, I mean, the abstention from voting, I believe, is a reference to the election in which he wasn't running and Ksenia Subchak was. And Navalny's point was that this was a sham election. But 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 more generally, I think that, you know, this man's brother has been in prison, was imprisoned for three years. He himself has just been poisoned. I think that there is strong evidence to suggest that he's not a Putin prop, particularly given that we're having this conversation this week. Yeah, I think I think it's, if anything, an understatement to say that it's unlikely that Navalny is put up by the Russian government. But the fact that sort of this sort of misinformation sort of spreads so much in Russia, I think points to an interesting relationship that I'd love to get your view on, Sarah, you know, having having written and studied corruption so closely. And that's the link between untruths or disinformation and corruption, and surely here Russia is the, the the best possible case study where you have you have a country that shows more than most how corrupt money can ruin everything it gets into contact with and twist any sort of meaningful civic life in a country. And I'd love to know kind of how, in your experience, with reference to Russia, but perhaps also other countries, how this sort of undermining of basic truths and facts or this this surge of misinformation through a system can work in league with with corruption because i can see it being a two-sided thing you know a corrupt a corrupt system justifies itself through untruths but untruths too can surely create more opportunities for that corrupt system you know you know you can arbitrage facts as it were into into hard rubles or dollars or whatever we should also just note that navalny's big cause is anti-corruption. That's why he's, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's why he's as well known in Russia as he is, because he makes the case not that Putin is not liberal enough or whatever, but that but that Putin is corrupt and is robbing Russia. Very rich question stream there. On that l- very last point, one thing I have noticed around the world is a good way to get dead is to challenge corruption. I, I've done some work in the post-Soviet space, and what I discovered there was human rights you know, campaigners, usually not really troubled. As soon as you start going after corruption, that gets serious. And that actually takes us to uh, Jesus and the money changers. If you read those four lines of gospel, what got him killed was pointing out the money changers, was shaming the money changers. 
the fact that Navalny is an anti-corruption campaigner is very connected to the danger that he's in. As for disinformation, misinformation, and secrecy, I think they're all intertwined and they are absolutely keystones along with identity divides of the arsenal that kleptocratic networks around the world use. And without getting as dramatic and obvious as Russia or even the Trump administration, you can look in the United States at the the tobacco industry, the sugar industry. The sugar industry very deftly and subtly got Americans really, 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 really worried about fat for decades and slowed down research that the sugar industry already had on the essentially toxic effects of sugar for decades until we were basically all hooked on it. And so it can be extremely subtle. It can really be a kind of sprinkling of doubt, which serves as a kind of magic invisibility cloak for kleptocratic networks. Another way they do it is by philanthropy. Finally, on Navalny, just one other thing I would say is the way there's another theme in On Corruption in America. I use an expression that comes from the Gilded Age, from Gilded Age protesters. And they talked about propaganda by the deed. And it's something I also saw in Afghanistan, which is to say, when a group is outnumbered, when it is waging asymmetric warfare, it very often communicates via actions and not words. And so I find the United States is all riveted on words and parsing words and what does this mean and what, whereas here you have Navalny is clearly an act of propaganda by the deed, by the Kremlin. I do think, you know, the Russian network, if you will, Putin's network is very effective at using propaganda by the deed. And there's a wonderful recent book called Shadow State by Luke Harding, which I think will help people parse this latest episode uh, by looking at some earlier ones where people were poisoned in the United Kingdom. Yeah. I'd just like to finish this, seeing as we've been talking a bit about sort of Russia and Eastern Europe on on perhaps a hopeful note. And I'd just, just be interested in your quick response to this, Sarah, before we, we close. And that's that regular listeners will know I often like to think about these things in terms of causes for optimism and causes for pessimism. And it's true that the picture in Russia, particularly with Navalny here in Berlin, still in intensive care, is not looking good. But you look elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and there have been glimpses of hope in recent years, particularly in countries marked by the scourge of corruption that you so eloquently describe. I mean, anti-corruption causes were a major driver of the protests in Belarus. And one of the figureheads of those protests, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, made her name uh, criticizing corruption in the country. You look at Slovakia, I mean, here we're in the realms of that negative populism, to go back to our earlier point. You look at Slovakia, where a very li- a sort of liberal uh, president who's pushed back against some of the, the, the tendencies towards nativism, authoritarianism, Susanna Chapotova, made her name too as an anti-corruption lawyer. You could look to Hungary. I mean, this is more Emily's area of expertise, but where you have a, an anti-Orban mayor of Budapest 
who also has sort of made it his calling card to take on instances of corruption. He set up a new anti-corruption task force in the, in, in the city hall. And I wonder, you know, we started with the RNC. As we mull what you rightly, I think, call sort of negative populism, the populism of unfounded anger, of tribalism, of cultural wars that don't lead anywhere, that often provides a sort of cover for, for the march of corruption, that in, in responding to those it seems to me that anti-corruption can be an incredibly powerful political force. You know, it doesn't distinguish between, you know, your cultural identity as a member of a movement. It doesn't distinguish between divisive political labels. It simply distinguishes between that which conforms to our visceral sense of what is just and right and that that doesn't. It's such a sort of fundamental cause. And I just wonder if, you know, with a note of optimism, whether the way out of our, our era defined by these these, these tribalisms by these cultural wars, by the sort of mob mentality you see in, in some parts of, of, of the world, is, is to make anti-corruption into a popular cause and, into, and to use it as a, as a way to gather those who might be of different political views on other issues, but who do have a kind of common cause in tackling it. Do you see hope just in anti-corruption as a sort of powerful moral cause whose moment might, might have come in that respect? You're describing, Jeremy, the original populism. That's exactly what it was. It was a very sophisticated and creative and cross-cutting anti-corruption movement. So yes, of course I do. But the concern I have, and here here comes another myth, is that as I have looked at anti-corruption uprisings around the world today, I find that First of all, they remain a little bit too susceptible to the identity divide. I think that we need to get very conscious as we embark on an anti-corruption crusade, if you will, to be as tough on our own side as we are on the other side. Otherwise, it just becomes another another polarizing issue where that side is corrupt, but but I kind of I suddenly have you know, I've got 20-20 vision when looking across the aisle, but suddenly my eyesight fails when I'm noticing who I'm sitting next to, right? And that I see all over the place. And secondly, there's a, so here's the, the other myth, the Hydra. These networks are Hydras. They can afford to lose one or two heads. They will sprout new ones. And so we mustn't confuse the person at the top, be it Orban or be it Trump, with the network. And it means that the sophistication of effort that we bring to bear has to be quite considerable. And that's why in the epilogue to On Corruption in America, I have almost a grab bag of different things that ordinary people can do to address this issue. Now, it is largely directed at Americans, but I think non-Americans can find the equivalent in their own contexts. And it needs to be as you put it, Jeremy, a demand for a higher standard on the part of our public officials. But there are ways that we can bring our private efforts to bear on that objective. And so the real message of this book is, as I said before, get in this fight, get in this anti-corruption fight. Don't fall for the idea that corruption is some technicality out there that only wonks are interested in. Man, this is the root of everything that's going wrong. And if we want to stave off calamity, let's fight now the way we would fight to survive if the calamity had hit. That forward-thinking note brings us nicely to our, our final segment of the pod in which we say what we're looking 
forward to or or dreading as the case may be in the week ahead. Sarah, as our as our guest, you get you get the first go. What will you be watching in the next week? Tomorrow morning, I am getting in my little electric car and I am driving to Boston, Massachusetts from Washington, D.C., where I am at this particular instant in order to attend my younger sister's wedding. Oh, which I frankly think now when I call her my kid sister, she is 52 years old, but you'd never know. And for me, making a commitment, a lifetime commitment to another human being or to a place or to a cause is an incredibly forward-looking thing to do. So that's what I'm looking forward to. That was the loveliest answer we've, we've had so far on to that question. Jeremy, I don't know how you're going to one up that one, but what are you watching for I, the next? I, I won't even try. I, I will just go along with the very prosaic uh, fact, but albeit very uh, relevant to our last discussion, which is that I'm looking out for uh, a little bit further ahead. So next Thursday, the third of September, there's going to be a, a sort of nationwide protest by South Africa's biggest public sector union. There's, there's been a, a, a protest movement building over the summer in South Africa, starting with anger at the government's response to the coronavirus, then. Um, intertwining for a while with the Black Lives Matter movement, which of course was very relevant there, and now a kind of growing anger at um, precisely some of the things we've talked about, corruption, uh, particularly the fact that a lot of money allocated for fighting coronavirus seems to have gone astray or been siphoned off one form or another, including funds for PPE equipment for medical professionals. So I think that it's going to be in perhaps one of the biggest moments yet in this long summer of protest in South Africa. And I think the country is not in a good way. The, the, the existing deep racial, economic and social divides there have been exacerbated, as they have in other countries, by the, the, the virus. And I think that could be an important one. So I'll be looking out for that. And I, since we were just speaking about Russia, will note that Next Tuesday, so a week from today, is the anniversary of the tragedy at Beslan, which was uh, Chechen rebels seized a school in North Ossetia. The siege itself was what was what resulted in the deaths of over 330 people. Most of them were children. And I think that as we look ahead to what's happening with corruption, with the political scene in countries maybe that are not our own, it's, it's also incumbent on us to remember their pasts. With that, I think that all that is left for us to do is to thank Sarah Chase for joining us today and to remind you, our listeners, that she is the author of On Corruption in America and What is at Stake. That's the US title. The UK title is Everybody Knows Corruption in America. Sarah, thank you so much for, for taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. Also, a notice that we will be uh, discussing the Navalny issue and, and question further, along with other You Ask Us questions in our roundup coming up soon. So we will try and get to all the questions that we haven't got to, or that we could say a bit more about in our regular episodes in that upcoming this podcast. So please keep sending in your questions to uskus.co.uk and please do subscribe to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.